Welcome to the CND Podcast. I'm Clinical and Custom Editor, Nana Ofuriata. In May, CND held its eighth big debate live at the Clinical Pharmacy Congress, which asked the question, should community pharmacy teams recommend herbal medicines to patients? Hosted the session and was joined by Sid Dijani, owner and superintendent pharmacist at Wainwright Chemist in Hampshire, Hala Jawad, a Booth Pharmacist MPDA representative, and Matthew Ellswood, Chief Pharmacist of Nottinghamshire Healthcare NHS Foundation Trust. Today's topic that we're going to be discussing is a question really, should community pharmacists or pharmacists in general recommend herbal remedies for their patients? The format we're going to take up is we'll have one of the panelists speak for five minutes on the points of for or against, and we'll give the other side an opportunity to counter that argument, and then we'll swap over. So we'll go alphabetically and we'll get Hala to go first. So you've got five minutes. Hello everyone. And today we are going to discuss a very important topic. We see the use of herbal medication had increased through the years. And a lot of people come to the pharmacy to discuss some herbal medication they're on. So it all goes to about education. I know we are all pharmacists and a lot of medication that we know about came from herbal. But, you know, we don't have that much scientific evidence. So that's where we're in that grey area at the moment. We need to have that education as well to educate our patients to make sure as well they have to tell us the truth what they're taking. So if we talk through with the patient about their medication, that will help them take a decision. And we are not advising at that point, but we are supporting and holding their hands through what they want. It's a personal choice at the end of the day. But we have to make sure that the patient is safe. Safety always comes first. And we have to make sure that there's no interaction with the medication they're on. So basically, if they're taking some medication that might cause harm, that's where we have to advise the patient not to take that medication and stick to what they're taking because we have more scientific evidence. That's basically what we are coming from. It's quite a grey area. We cannot advise on taking herbal medication, but we can advise if they need support, we can support those patients. There's a lot of grey areas in that topic where we have to be careful because we're pharmacists at the end of the day. And then when we advise our patients, we have to be very careful. So that's my view on a bit of introduction about herbal medication. I'm going to hand it to Sid to talk more about that topic and then maybe we'll discuss later about these topics. Thank you. I think if you don't believe in herbal medicines being here to stay, you must belong to the Flat Earth Society. It's a very simple reason there. Whether you believe herbal medicines are a miracle of nature or you believe they are a miraculous cure, whether you believe it's quackery or cynical illusions, whether you're a believer or not, you will be ignoring herbal medicines at your peril. Let me explain. Even if you don't believe in herbal medicines, what have chloroquinine treating COVID, Donald Trump accusing the American election of being rigged in 2021, and... COVID-19 vaccination causing infertility. The fact is, they're all quackery. There's more traction and gravity in space than any of those allegations. Yet, they go on social media and suddenly people believe it. I've got very intelligent friends ask me about chloroquinine and they believe in it because they've read about it on the internet. Five people died out of Donald Trump's assertion. So clearly quackery is believed. So we cannot ignore it. So that brings two things into focus. The first is we can't ignore it because it's everywhere. Even if we wanted to, we can't brush it aside, we can't hide it, 
It's on every high street. It's in tablets, capsules, powders, infusions, teas, green teas, red teas, pink teas, purple teas with unicorn poop in. Bottom line is they're everywhere. Second line is we have to provide a stance of logical evidence and public are not morally vigorously defensive of logic and evidence as much as we are as the medicines people. So we have a duty to educate and inform. So when you look at it, I think we all have to be informed about it. First off is we have to appreciate that nothing that is natural organic is necessarily safe. Nightshade is natural. Would you take it? Comfrey, that's natural, but it can cause cancers and they can cause liver failure. Would you take it? Cyanide, that's also natural. It's organic. Have some. You'll never have a headache ever again. So clearly, natural does not necessarily mean safe. And a lot of people don't realise that. Secondly, because it's unregulated, there is some form of THR regulation around it. But a lot of the time, it's not regulated. So, for example, cannabis oil. Some of it has THC in it. Some has no CBD oil in it. So if you're going to be stocking it, make sure you have the right providence because your word is your bond. And as pharmacists, if you lose the trust of the public, you lose all dignity as a professional. So you must know what you're stocking. Third, and the most important for me, I do the new medicine service. And I would say about 50 to 70% of my patients are on herbal medicines and other treatments. Now, it doesn't matter if they think herbal medicines are celestially marvellous. It doesn't matter if they think that they're not real medicines, so I can't tell you. The point is, there are interactions. Stockley's herbal medicines interactions companion will show that something like St. John's liverwort affects liver enzymes, so it can affect up to 7% of all prescribed medication OTC meds. So although my, my, my patients are very well educated, as, as are members of the team, a lot of them are unsure about what the interactions are, and that's where we would come in. So taking clover oil, red clover for menopause, lo, um, fish oils, um, chondritin, uh, glucosamine, all of these things, but they don't really appreciate their interactions there. So the two things I would say that we need to make sure as a take-home from today are, one, make sure that all your patients and clients and patrons tell you that if they're on any herbal medicines and two is if they're thinking about taking it they should speak to us first or any healthcare professional first because we would bring simplicity to complexity thank you very much Sid thank you Halal um, I think we'll give Matthew uh, an opportunity to chime in I'm really not going to say very much I'm ostensibly a floating voter in this discussion and I think both of the speakers before have laid out their platforms for debate. I suppose my approach to this as someone that works uh, with people with mental health problems in a secondary care setting uh, is that I see that you need to take each individual case on its merits and treat people as individuals. But I'm interested to see what you think. So I think I'm now going to hand it back to my honourable friend and we start the debate. Okay, so now we're going to open up the floor to questions. So if anyone has got questions for either one of our panellists. Uh, Beth Kennedy, CND. So what happens if a patient decides to stop taking conventional medicine and take a herbal medicine in its place? What options are open to the pharmacist then, or what would you recommend that they do in these situations? Okay, thank you very much, Beth. I think we'll let Sid go first. That happens almost every day as a jobbing pharmacist, every day. The first thing is they lack a spursuit, they lack insight as to why they're doing it. So first of all, we've got to work out why they're doing it, because 
as Nana said, everybody's an individual. You know, when you do smoking cessation or substance misuse, first thing you look at is the individual's motivation, the individual's reasoning, their background as to why they reached that point where they've decided to start or stop. And I think the first thing is to address their fears. So even if they believed in a one-eyed turquoise dragon living in a glass jar on their shelf and they believe that that gives them advice, I'm happy with that so long as there's no harm done. But if there is harm that, that is a problem, then I think what I would def definitely do is address their concerns, show them the evidence, relate it to other patients in a similar situation, and then monitor them quite regularly. You know, contact their prescriber as well, their medical team if they've got one, and go from there. And I think really it's down to addressing fears and their insights rather than anything else, reconditioning them. Usually works. Thank you. Safety always comes first, so it depends on what that patient's condition is. So if it's a life-threatening condition, of course we have to step in and see what medication they're on. Um, and if it affects their safety, then that's a different issue. So safety always comes first, and that's why we have to take it on person to person, so we cannot tell them to stop medication unless it's safe for them and see what their condition is and if there's an interaction and everything like that. Thank you. And finally, Matthew? So in this country, the Mental Capacity Act enshrines in law your right to make a bad decision. So I think the first thing I would be thinking is, does this individual have the capacity to make the decision? And then I would go from there. But actually, your right to make decisions about your health is enshrined in law. I think as pharmacists, we find it very difficult to let a patient be. Just one other front. My name's Dennis. Um, this present time, there's, so, there's women of certain age going through HRT problems. Now, there are products, herbal products, allegedly, that's supposed to help the HRT problems. So, what will be your concerns? Thank you very much. Hello? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of women that comes, you know, to the pharmacy for HRT and they want natural, you know, substance because they think they might be able to cope with taking natural sort of, you know, ingredients. If they're happy and they feel like they are, like, controlling the symptoms with the natural ingredients and herbal and it's safe and all that stuff, yeah, it's their choice. If not, then we can advise them on the other stuff that we have in the market. So, it's really a personal choice at the end of the day. As long as they're safe, they're happy, and they feel like, you know, that's controlling their symptoms, yeah, why not? Okay. Um, yeah. Um, this is a really big, poignant point, because obviously with all the shortages, we're seeing more and more people coming through the doors. I think the first thing we've got to really work out is what are the alternatives and what can we do about it. So, premium non nocere first do no harm, so there's no reason why we can't recommend a Clovervil if it doesn't interact with anything else. But I think the real basis is switching. Sometimes we might be able to switch. Um, Eastrail's now back in stock, so that's not so bad. But when you're treating menopause, it's a, it's a holistic approach, not a conditional approach. You know, you've got to remember, medicines treat symptoms. Pharmacists treat people. And therefore, one of the biggest things around the menopause, or the manopause, because that's, that's coming in now, is basically treating the whole individual. So it's down to their symptoms again to addressing the whole thing what is the real concern behind this and then my job as a prescriber slash community pharmacist is to then liaise with the gp and see what we've got available that we can give and again the new medicine service we might kick in at that point um, and then we just basically monitor and, and support so at the end of the day it's about outcomes driven rather than what product we're giving as pharmacy professionals we're very much trained to work consistent with the evidence aren't we 
But what we have to acknowledge and one of the central tensions of the issues that we have to hold is sometimes there is no evidence. Okay. What I would say is that the absence of evidence is not the absence of efficacy. It's simply the absence of evidence. And this is where we need to do our homework and our research. And we need to dig a little bit deeper. And we need to make sure the approach being taken is safe and effective for the individual. But we mustn't disregard options because of a lack of rigorous study. I'm old enough um, to remember quite a lot of the drugs used in psychiatry, the area I work in, have a very poor evidence base. Very old studies, small scale, poor controls. If you look at the evidence for lithium, it's not altogether that strong, but it's the gold standard treatment for bipolar affective disorder, because times change. And we have to remember also that a lot of the evidence that we base our practice on is not entirely impartial evidence. And there are issues and conflicts in the way that evidence for medicines and licenses come to be. So evidence-based medicine and holding that intention with all of those limitations contextualized into the individual, it's a challenge. Thank you very much. Do we have another question? Thank you for that. It's very, very good to hear your views on this. I suppose for me, it would be really good to put a scenario together for you to see if you can debate that through. So if you had a uh, mother and a child who had a skin condition which was very severe and the mother decided she wanted to use a herbal remedy and we talk about evidence base, how would you manage that situation? Would the mother be using it on the child? Yes. So the first thing I would do is, apart from doing the two wham and everything else and what they've tried in the past, if they've had it and it worked, stick with it. Um, if, it, if they've tried it and it hasn't worked, then maybe we can talk about alternatives, conventional alternatives, evidence-based, not lithium-based alternatives for uh, um, But, you know, we could look at alternatives and we can look at realising expectations. So sometimes they're not using that enough or they might need to use two things at once or they might need, you know, like with Acris cream, they're not using eight times a day, it's not likely to work, you know, before they use the steroids. So a lot of it is around working out what's happened in the past, being a forensic detective, a pharmacological inspector, uh, not, not from a GPHC, I hasten to, to add, and basically putting your, your, your policeman's cap on, basically just, just fact-finding. And then once you realise that, working out the solution, once you know what the problem is, is a lot easier. So fact-finding for me is a lot more important. And then nine out of ten times it works. Experience helps. <laughs> That's good. Uh, Matthew? Yeah, I think Sid's made some really good points. And the only thing I think that I would look to add here is the reminder that the duty of care you have as a pharmacy professional is to both parties. So actually, you always have to be mindful of that potential for a safeguarding issue. So that's the only thing that I think that I would add, but I think Sid has really well articulated the, the approach. And hello? Um, basically, I would ask the mother why she chose the herbal medication and who advised her on that medication and why she thinks that medication works or the herbal works and whereas why she's not seeking any other advices and it depends what herbal medication she's on she might be giving that child something you know a safeguarding issue so we have to look properly into the scenario and see what's the medication what's used for and why she chose that medication not other medications and uh, we have to take it through step by step so it's a difficult one to <laughs> to go through, but we have to check with the with the mother why she chose that medication. Of course, if we can advise her to use like uh, medication, or she needs to, to seek advice, or it's harmful for the child, then we have to go through a different scenario so, with her. 
Perfect. Um, I think Sue wants to make a final point. Yeah, just something that Harla and Matt both raised. As pharmacists, we can't discriminate. And so we have to treat. If somebody believes in that blue-eyed dragon, or that turquoise dragon, or they believe in homeopathy, or Chinese medicine, or uh, homotoxicology, uh, homo or anti-homolytic therapy, we can't laugh at their faces and say to them, that's not work, that's not true, ha, ha, ha. There's no evidence. We have to take on board everything they say, because if we start poo-pooing everything they say, they'll go somewhere else where there's less reliable information. So I think the first thing is we mustn't start laughing whenever they mention things that we don't believe in. We have to take everything seriously. I think I'm going to use my um, host privilege and push the scenario a little bit further. Um, you all kind of say, let them try it and see how whether it works or not. What time limit would you put on that? Because in conditions where letting them try it might be making it worse, would you still let them try it? So basically it depends on safety first. It depends if that is going to be giving you know the effect that the mother wants. If it's not going to give the effect that the mother wants or that whatever, it's hemopathy or herbal, whatever, if it's safe as well for the child. If we feel that there's going to be side effects, going to be harmful, of course, we have to say, well, you know, this is a harmful, that's a harmful herbal medication. You have to stop that because it's going to harm, cause more harm than, than and we need to seek um, some medication that will help your child. So we have to review and keep, you know, keeping that patient coming to us so that they can come back to us and discuss the issue then saying, well, you know, it's going to work, it's not going to work. So we keep that sort of uh, patient-centered care with the patient. As I said before, I, I work in uh, with mental health patients in secondary care. Uh, when I first started on that journey to be a prescriber, I got myself very caught up with needing to practice according to the evidence. It was the most important thing. I needed to nail my risk assessments. I needed to get the consultation right. But actually what I've learned over time is that the single most important thing I can do with my patients is deliver a consultation that they're happy with that means that they come back again next time. Rapport is so important in healthcare. And actually I think that the, potentially alongside all of the things we've discussed already, the key in a scenario like this is establishing a rapport with the mother, which enables that kind of ongoing discussion and debate and relationship, gets it back through the door again. I think that will be something important for me. Thank you. Sid? Yeah, everything's been said. Totally agree with everything. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you've got another question? Well, just, just a statement. Um, I have been through that scenario before, and I ended the conversation with saying, well, end of the day, you are the mother, so it's your choice. So a pharmacist that uh, subjects themselves to patient choice? Yeah, I think well, can so. I, I would disagree it's patient choice. If they want to kill themselves in the pharmacy, that's, that, I wouldn't <laughs> recommend that. Um, I think, if the, I think you can inform their choice to the best of your ability, but ultimately it's down to them. But then you need to keep records, because last thing you want to be done is when something goes wrong and your information has not been recorded and they've presumed you've said something else. So I think you know, auditing everything you've said is going to be covering you. So we're living in an age now where we have to record everything, even right down to the signposting referrals. And my team are totally trained to do that, because it's not written down it never happened. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Go on, sir. Um, Sid, thanks for mentioning about signposting because I think um, all three of you have made some really good points. But it's worth pharmacists also liaising with medical herbalists. And if you look online, there is um, a national institute for medical herbalists. 
which would help us, each, and, each one of us, to find one locally to where we practice and work with them, liaise with them, and see what evidence bases they use, what, what are their go-to treatments for that case study just now. So um, I think pharmacists think maybe we should have all the answers with herbal medicines, but actually there are other practitioners and resources out there we should be looking out to. Thank you very much. So when should we refer to the local herbalist? I have to say I fail on that one. My signposting register has got literally hundreds of local from SADs to, you know, mar marital breakups to, you know, depression to suicide and even right down to audiologists in the area. But I promise I will do that first thing Monday morning. That's a very good point. Because normally we think of Holland and Barrett, don't we, and things like that. But there's far more crap because there is something called the traditional herbal regulation which is very very holy and you know it's unregulated and you know some are part of it and some aren't and to be fair I'm not an expert on that as much as I try to be so that would be a CPD point and I'll do that on Monday morning I'll give you a call Michael and <laughs> take a picture and show you I'll put it on top of a Christmas card I'll wrap you up the the signposting folder that I'm going to do about it wow the entry. that's, thank that's you. evidence uh, Sid thank you <laughs> thank you um Matt I'm a chief pharmacist and I've got a lot of staff that look up to me. Sometimes they come and sit in on my clinic. They expect me to know everything. I guarantee to you, I learn every day, I don't know everything. But what I do know is what I'm going to do when I reach the edge of my knowledge and my confidence and my competence. And that's when I'm gonna go and talk to someone else. I'm gonna go and get a viewpoint from someone else that I think is gonna be able to give me the answer. Or it might be something else, so it might be a reference source. And I really like the fact that you've told us about that because I had, no, I had no awareness of it. So I think that's a matter for individual professional judgment. I think the one thing I would take from that is the importance of networks and networking. And many of you will work in a range of different sectors, but if you're interested to be attached to a network for mental health, then you could go to the College of Mental Health Pharmacy stand, the CMHP stand, learn about what they do, consider becoming a member, and that will immediately join you into a network where you can get advice and support around mental health very easily. Thank you. And Hala? I mean, I do agree. If it's out of our, our competency, then uh, basically we have to seek advice because we cannot give advice if we don't know what's the right answer. So we always have to seek advice in the right time and the right place. Yes, thank you. Three exemplary pharmacists saying they don't know everything. We can allow one more question. You're going to really love me for this. So. You know, it's really interesting because obviously when you talk about home medicines, you're talking about patients and you're talking about them actively wanting a herbal remedy. We live in a multicultural society, right? People from different backgrounds have different views on herbal remedies and herbal medicines. So how would you address that on a patient basis and also local and national level? Hala, your question. <laughs> hey. I mean, uh, people have different views. We are all different. That's why we're all here today. People might say we are with herbal. Some people say we're not, we're against. So this is everyone's opinion. But at the end of the day, as we said in the beginning, you know, even if we go through other countries, a lot of other countries as well may rely on herbal medication, like in Chinese medications or, you know, India. So we have a lot of countries, basically. They use it as a first choice and they think it works for them. So we cannot... In this scenario, we cannot judge people on their choices, but all we have to do is 
hold their hands and take them through the process. If it's going to work with them and give them, you know, what they wanted, then it's fine. It's working for them. I have, you know, it's their choice. That's why we all have choices in life. If it's not going to work, then basically, then we have to advise them on the right path. I mean, we can take their hands and go through it and see what works for them. As long as safety comes first, we don't want them to have toxicity or interact with their medication. That's where we can stand up and support them. But at the end of the day, we cannot tell people not to take anything if they feel it's working for them. That's my view on this. Okay. I was tempted to talk about cultural competence, but I think actually that's the wrong approach. In my experience working with patients, no two people are the same. So you can make a lot of assumptions about people and you can be wrong a million times. No two people are the same. Each consultation is different. And for me, it's about getting an understanding of the individual in the room with me, how they see the world, what their priorities are, what they believe. And then I've got to use my consultation skills, my rapport to actually get in there and see what I can do in terms of that consultation. For me, it's about an approach rather than an answer. In terms of your question about how do we do this at a regional and a national level, I'll leave that one for Sid. <laughs> it's called a pharmaceutical needs assessment, Matt. Ignorance is not the lack of knowledge. Sometimes ignorance is the wrong perception. In your area, if you've been in your area long, you know, based on pharmaceutical assessment, who your punters are. And based on that, you would either have stuff that would speak that language or you'd have access to the internet or you'd have resources. But your ears are the most important thing when you're a healthcare professional. Listening. So underrated. So underrated. Selective hearing is even better. But yeah, listening, hearing is the most important thing. I try not to say anything for the first two minutes of a consultation. I only try and say something when I need to the consultation to end because it's lasted an hour. Um, <laughs> some people just want to talk and get it. But again, clues are being dropped all the time and you write notes. And I always tell them, I'm really sorry, but do you mind if I keep notes? And I just drop the odd words and sometimes I replay those words to get my level of understanding. So then when the next person comes in with that cultural similarity, although they're different, you have an idea of what to go down. It's all about memory and listening and, and, and not jumping to conclusions is really important. And it's so easy to do that. And that, that, so I would say listening will help rule out any form of insult through ignorance. Matt wants to make a final point. So my dad worked on the railway for nearly 30 years and he's got a particular lexicon which he uses to devastating effect. We've all met people like this. I really love what Sid has just said, but what my dad would say is, you've got two ears and one mouth. <laughs> and that's the ratio with which they should be applied. <laughs> the only other point that I thought to mention is that, and because we are pharmacy professionals and we think about the evidence, we mustn't forget that studies don't always tell us all of the answers. And actually, the consultation that accompanies decisions around medicines can be as impactful, if not more impactful, than the medicine itself. If you choose a medicine and you believe that it's going to work for you, it is more likely to work for you. That is established in evidence. So actually, whatever decisions we make, we can do an awful lot with our consultation. Thank you. I think we have time for just one sentence statement from each one of the panelists and then we'll just wrap it up. So if Matt, you want to go first? I don't really have any closing remarks. I'd just like to thank you all for taking the time to come and participate in the discussion.
and halal? Yeah, I mean, it's an important topic. That's one of the first time they say, can you come and do this topic? I say, oh my God, everyone gets scared because, you know, <laughs> it's a great topic. But um, thank you very much for sharing your views as well. And it's, we can all make a difference over here because it's a topic that always hit the pharmacy or people come to us all the time and thousands of people are using those medications. On, but we have to make sure it's safe because we have as well a lot of, you know, places where people are buying that medication where it's not safe. So at least if they get it from a safe resource or, you know, so that we can guide them through it. So it's important to guide people through their choices. Thank you. Thank you. And Sid? Yeah, as I said, through the NMSs, I know that at least half of my patients are taking some form of herbal medicine or some form of alternative therapy. Knowing that, you would know whether their disease status is worsening or whether it could be the herbal medicine that's affecting their, their treatment or something. You need to know that. So I would say... Four words, ignore it, sorry, five words even, <laughs> dyscalculia, ignore it at your peril. I think from me, what I have learned is that as pharmacists, we don't know everything. And it's always better to keep the patient coming to you to talk rather than to just let that patient go away. So on that note, I'd like to say a very big thank you to our panelists. That was pharmacist Sid Dijani, Hala Jawad, and Matthew Elswu discussing the merits of recommending herbal medicines to patients. Members of the live audience brought up some interesting scenarios to consider, and it seems the jury is still out on the issue. Nonetheless, all the panelists stressed the importance of patient safety first and foremost. You can catch up with the discussion and share your views on the CND community. Also, stay tuned for the CND's next big debate. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.